0: Hello everyone, and thanks again for listening. Remember to subscribe to the podcast if you're listening on iTunes, or to follow me on SoundCloud if you're getting the podcast there. This is another biographical episode, and I have to say, I really enjoy writing these. The characters of the Second World War are just absolutely fascinating. There are so many different backgrounds, from the highborn Hirohito and Churchill, to the lowly Mussolini and Stalin. I find it extremely thought-provoking to consider how all these people viewed the world, and how their circumstances shaped them. What was it about Eisenhower that made him ideally suited to lead a multinational military effort? Why was Mussolini adept at gaining power but so incompetent at wielding it? Oftentimes these characters are mythologized so much that we forget that there were times in their lives when they were nobodies too. Perhaps by looking at their childhoods and early lives we can learn what made them tick. We can maybe learn the same lessons they did, or perhaps avoid the same pitfalls. Also, a quick note about dates. Since Tsarist Russia was still using an old, unreformed calendar, dates don't match up with Western calendars, as many of you are probably already aware. For example, the October Revolution actually took place in November. As such, I'll be intentionally vague with dates for the most part with this episode, just because I don't want to get bogged down during the narrative, and I don't want to spend a ton of time hunting down accurate dates. Rather than specify between old calendar and new calendar, I'll just give month and year. Anyway, without any further prologue, it's time for episode 12 Man of Steel. On a frigid December morning in 1879, Viserion Zhugashvili and Ekaterina Galatsa had their fourth child together. They named him Joseph Viserionovich, the suffix ovich basically meaning little Viserion, or Viseryan's son, as is customary in Russia, Ukraine, and Georgia, where little Joseph was born. The home he was born into was not a happy one. It was bad enough to be born an ethnic minority. Joseph was Georgian in Tsarist Russia, but he was born not only into poverty, but into an abusive household. His father was a chronic alcoholic who regularly beat his family. Vissarion made his living as a cobbler, but could hardly support the family, so Ekaterina took on menial labor like stitching and laundering. Of all the dictators, Joseph Stalin was certainly the lowest born. He was only two generations removed from archaic medieval serfdom, and was far from any center of industry. He was little more than a peasant, living on the periphery of an aging and decrepit empire in the tiny village of Gori. Little is known about the first five years of Joseph's life with his father, likely because he intentionally scrubbed the record. There exist accounts of him having been beaten so badly there was blood in his urine for a week. Another time, he threatened his father with a knife to get him to stop beating his mother, and once even went to the police to get them to intervene and prevent his father from killing his mother. In 1895, Vissarion would leave his family and his failed business behind to try to make some money in Tbilisi, Of course, it's entirely likely that Ekaterina finally got sick of Viserion's drunk, broke, violent behind ruining her life and kicked him out. Viserion died in complete ignominy a few years later, likely in a drunken stupor. So when Joseph was five years old, his father was out of his life for good. He was, for the most part, a healthy child, but when he was seven he came down with smallpox. Still a frightening and deadly disease in the late 19th century, there was no guarantee that he would survive but he pulled through. The disease did leave his face scarred for life, to the point that the czarist secret police, the Okrana, would later dub him Raya boy, the pockmarked boy. He was hardly rid of domineering and violent men though. His mother was a devout Orthodox Christian and wished for her son to join the priesthood. Her desire must have also been influenced by the fact that the church was one of the few places a man born into destitution could rise above his station. After recovering from the pox, Ekaterina set to teaching the boy Russian so that he could enter the gory theological school. After turning nine, his Russian was good enough for him to begin his studies there. Young Joseph was developing well by this time, despite his difficult childhood and his disease. He was nearing his full height of 5 feet 4 inches, which was just a bit above average for Georgian men. He was muscular and broad-shouldered. Joseph was one of the brightest pupils in his class, and loved to read. He was a fine student, and for most of his time in school, stayed out of trouble. This was not necessarily due to his good behavior, though. He was simply adept at staying on his proctor's good side. Behind closed doors, he was a bully and enjoyed getting into fights. He also had a knack for forming cliques centered around himself. It was also while at the gory school that he would receive the injury that would leave his arm crippled for life. While walking down the street, he fell in front of a horse-drawn carriage and was run over. He lay for more than a week in hospital and nearly died, but once again he pulled through. His left arm would remain disfigured, though, and was several inches shorter than the other. He remained self-conscious of his arm and his height for the entirety of his life. Other than that, Joseph's time at the gory school was rather uneventful. While there, he polished up on his Russian and developed an angelic singing voice, but otherwise seems to have passed his time there productively, if not very remarkably. At the age of 15, he had completed his primary education and so moved on to secondary school. Starting in 1894, he would be enrolled in the Tiflis Theological Seminary, a school renowned for the harshness of its headmasters and the growing nationalism of its pupils. The Tiflis School was a school in the strict sense that it had books and teachers and purported to teach its students. But in many ways, it was a model for the authoritarian, oppressive, surveillance state that young Joseph would one day implement on all of Russia. It was no accident that the incredibly intrusive, disciplinarian instructors turned out far more revolutionaries than actual priests. Into this came teenaged Joseph Vissarinovich. Every morning, he and his fellow students greeted with several hours of mass, followed by instruction until 3 p.m. At that time... Students have two hours of quote-unquote, free time, tailed by a 5 p.m. curfew. Joseph gradually came to despise the oppressive regime more and more. He was, however, one of the better students, and actually earned himself a half scholarship, and managed to form a clique of students around him. Surprisingly, what wound up getting him into trouble was not his bullying, but his reading. The students were subject to regular searches of their dormitories, and Joseph especially was a target due to his deep appetite for books. Only theological texts were permitted at the school, but his desire for knowledge went far beyond rigid interpretations of orthodoxy. He was reading Marx, Victor Hugo, and Dostoevsky. The only thing that saved him from more severe punishment was his knack for turning in fellow pupils. He found it a great way to ingratiate himself with the monks and to eliminate schoolyard rivals. This wouldn't save him from punishment forever, though. He was twice caught with forbidden books and placed in solitary confinement. During his last couple of years at the seminary, he became more and more active in his anti-zarist activities and first became interested in the growing socialist, what we would now call communist, movement. One of the key influencers in Joseph's gravitation toward radicalism was a boy named Lado Ketkuszkveli. Lado was a former seminarian himself and had led a student strike against the faculty 3 years earlier in 1893 and was a leading local agitator. He took the young, disaffected Joseph under his wing and taught him the ways of propagandizing and socialist evangelism. This provided him with a new sense of purpose and something to pour his intellectual energy into. Now, during his free time, he's going to organize with railway workers or print pamphlets rather than studying and his grades fell precipitously. During this period of radicalization, Joseph learned of his ability to remain calm in dangerous and violent situations. During the railway strike of December 1898, the Russian government unleashed the Cossacks onto the population with their whips and the flats of their swords, but Joseph maintained his cool the entire time. It was also during the strike that he learned to use the government's public violence against them. He soon realized that when the Cossacks came to crack down on striking workers, that bystanders would often get beaten just as bad as strikers. This led to the general attitude of the populace turning against the state. Of course, his complete disregard for his studies and troublemaking eventually caught up with him. So Joseph was expelled from the seminary in May 1899. He entered the Tiflis school a bright and promising pupil, but left it a violent revolutionary. But a revolutionary to what end? To an extent, he was Marxist bent on freeing the working class from the aristocracy, But he was also an inflamed Georgian nationalist. He even chose the name of a legendary Georgian savior, Koba, as his revolutionary moniker. But his true motivation likely always lay in attaining one thing, power. Forming schoolyard cliques, fomenting revolution, and inflaming nationalism all served to create a power base for himself. He wanted power and influence to dominate others. Like Mussolini and Hitler, he saw the power the church had over people and desired to understand it, and like them, he would use those lessons to his advantage. Ironically, this made Stalin a prime recruit for the Okrana. The Okrana did not recruit fervent czarists or elite military men. Instead, they preyed on discontents, debtors, and men with something to hide. They would go to great lengths to legitimize their assets, going so far as to arrest men and throw them in jail to counter any suspicions. Not just anyone would do, though. They needed operatives who were liable and literate, uneducated peasants wouldn't do. So Joseph Zhugashvili made the perfect target. He was disillusioned and aimless, but he was relatively well-educated. So with no other option, he became an agent of the Okhrana. For six months he disappeared, training in the ways of betrayal and subterfuge. When he returned to Tiflis, he suddenly had a position in the geophysical observatory as an accountant, where he made a modest 20 rubles a month. Though there is no direct evidence for it, it seems more than likely that he was recruited by the Tsarist secret police to infiltrate the local revolutionary cells. It explains his unaccounted-for absence and where he got the money to purchase and operate a printing press. Soon he began his real work, spreading revolutionary propaganda. He had somehow gotten hold of hundreds of newly printed pamphlets and copies of Iskra, Lenin's newspaper, and began distributing them soon after he began operating a clandestine printing press and giving inflammatory public speeches on a regular basis. The old revolutionaries were actually a little perturbed by this. First of all, they were committed to a gradualist approach to revolution and reform. They believed that through steady application of pressure on the state, they could effect lasting positive change. Coba, on the other hand, demanded direct, immediate action, and he did so publicly, with seeming impunity. It would take time, however, for the Okranas plan to pan out. The older, more seasoned revolutionaries were wary of the neophyte printer that had just fallen into their laps. Over time though, Joseph would gain access to the inner circles and learn the names and locations of not only the main agitators in Tiflis, but also sympathetic supporters who provided money and safe houses. But in 1901, the betrayal finally came. On a dark night in late March, the homes and hideouts of dozens of revolutionaries and their sympathizers were raided. Of course, Joseph Zugashvili had conveniently hidden away all of his revolutionary materials under a rock by the river. After the raid, the leading men of the local revolutionary circles were no longer a threat to the state, but many sympathizers and low-level agitators remained free to continue their agenda. Koba demonstrated this when he organized a demonstration of 2,000 workers in the center of Tiflis during which the remainder of the town's rabble-rousers were hospitalized and imprisoned. He himself, of course, was safely on the sidelines, so as to avoid being on the wrong end of a Cossack's whip. After these close calls, the local socialist party finally started to get suspicious of him. After verbally attacking the elder members, he was put on trial by the party. They found him guilty and expelled him from the party. Undeterred, Joseph traveled to the medium-sized town of Batum on the Black Sea coast, where he resumed his work. There, he instigated another series of demonstrations in March of 1902. The first protest resulted in 30 agitators being arrested. The second, in which the workers marched to the local prison demanding the release of their comrades, led to the arrest of 300. On the third day of demonstrations, 2,000 workers engaged in a protest that became violent. Dozens of men were killed or hospitalized while 500 were rounded up and thrown in jail. Curiously, Joseph remained untouched throughout. Once again, Koba's immense fortune at having escaped injury and arrest attracted attention to him from his fellow socialist organizers. Before they could decide what to do with him, though, he was arrested and shipped to Siberia. What impeccable timing. After a month in the gulag, he miraculously escaped captivity and returned to Georgia. What a lucky guy. Upon returning to his homeland, he met his first wife, Ekaterina, who bore him a son, Yakov. Joseph had little time to be a father though. He was now more invested in the Socialist Party than ever before. By all accounts, he was a loving father and faithful husband, but party business was now taking up more and more of his time. After the better part of a decade in the Georgian Socialist Party, he was becoming a senior member and now traveled to party conferences regularly. Between 1904 and 1907, he traveled to five party conventions from Finland to England. He was now 27 years old and a rising star in the socialist movement. It's not entirely clear to whom Stalin owed his loyalty during these early revolutionary years. Did he actually believe in the socialist cause, or was it simply someplace that he felt at home? And what are we to make of his service to the Okrana? Did he play off them the same way he did his rectors during his school days, as a way to protect himself and advance his own interests? I wonder if he felt any pangs of guilt when he set up his comrades and gave their names to the secret police to haul them off to exile. In my opinion, the most likely answer is that Joseph was ultimately loyal to one person, himself. The Socialist Party provided him with a purpose and a place to wield power. The Okrana gave him yet another instrument to gain that power and remove rivals, all while the while providing him with a well of cash and safety. How else could he have secured passports, lodging, and safety for eight years? Lastly, his old friend Joseph Irm provides us with some insight as to what motivated Stalin. He remarked, after one of the many violent brawls Stalin instigated, that, quote, I realized that the blood that had flowed during the demonstration had intoxicated him, Unquote. Interpret that as you will. Whatever humanity Joseph had left in himself at this point would soon be extinguished when his wife died. She had been one of the few pleasant aspects of his life, and her death finished the work started by his father, continued by the seminary brothers, and sharpened by the Okrana. Once again, we can thank Irmshvili for accounting how this affected Joseph. At Ekaterina's funeral, he pointed out his wife's casket and remarked, quote, She is dead, and with her, my last warm feelings for all human beings. End quote. Curiously, Stalin's life mirrors that of Ivan the Terrible in this way. Ivan IV Vasilievich had been the Grand Prince of Moscow in the mid-16th century, and the first Tsar. He was widely regarded as an enlightened and effective monarch. However, on the death of his wife, he turned dark and brooding. Perhaps Stalin identified personally with Ivan, and that's why he tried to associate himself with the Tsar. Regardless, from this point on, Joseph Jugashvili was dead. Stalin had arrived. He was still a nobody in the socialist movement at this point. The advantage he had over the other, more influential men was his access to cash. For this reason, he was appointed by Lenin to be a consultative delegate to the Russian Conference of the Russian Social Democratic Labor Party in 1903. The underground socialist movements in Russia had very few sources of cash. They mostly relied on the intelligence services of Russia's rivals. So a man who was able to bring money to the table was certainly valuable. What made Joseph even more valuable to Lenin was that he was one of the few Bolsheviks active in Georgia. Georgia was dominated by the Mensheviks, the wing of the party committed to gradual reform. So having an ally there would help bring the country into his more radical fold. Of course, having promised Lenin cash, Joseph now had to deliver on it. His plan was a daring raid on the Tiflis Imperial Bank. The robbery was a mixed success. The conspirators were successful in making off with 300,000 rubles, something like $10 million in today's money, as well as suitcases full of stocks and bonds. Unfortunately, the money was in known 500 ruble notes, and the stocks and bonds couldn't be exchanged for cash. Secondly, during the heist, the robbers got into a bloody battle with Cossacks and police, and during the melee, many fatalities resulted, including those of innocent onlookers. How much of this was set up by the Okhrana is impossible to say, but the Bolsheviks were dealt a severe blow by it. Many of their members were caught trying to use the stolen bills, and their international reputation suffered for the wanton use of violence. However, as always, Stalin himself benefited. He was now in Lenin's inner circle, and one of his closest lieutenants. Having secured for himself a prominent position in the Bolshevik movement, it seems Stalin broke away from the Okhrana. Perhaps he felt that they were now more trouble than they were worth. But without the assistance of the secret police, he would have a much harder time staying out of trouble. In the next ten years, until the revolution in 1917, he would be arrested five more times and exiled six times, one of which he actually served out. All of this would pay off when the revolution finally came though. He was beyond suspicion and reproach by his fellow conspirators and a trusted confidant of the revolution's leaders. When the revolution finally began in February of 1917, Stalin was again in exile in Siberia. In the chaos of the growing civil war, He was able to make his way back to Petrograd, where he rejoined his comrades. When the provisional government formed that summer and kicked Lenin out of the country, Stalin helped him escape to Finland. Then, in October, Stalin returned to help him overthrow that government and install Bolshevik leadership. For his efforts, Lenin appointed Stalin to the Central Committee and made him a commissar. As the Civil War dragged on, Stalin accumulated positions and power. He was certainly a better plotter and conspiratist than actual leader or administrator, though. In other words, he knew how to gain power, but wasn't actually all that great at wielding it, except when it came to preserving it for himself or using it to leverage yet more power. For example, he was placed in command of the defense of the town of Zaritsin, but bungled the defense badly. During the battle, he sent a division of conscripts to try and fend off the White Army, who were immediately captured. After a Red Cavalry division lifted the siege and defeated the White Army, the raw division was liberated. Stalin accused them of all being traitors to the revolution and just executed them. He was not much better an administrator, but he accumulated as many boards and committees as he could. As he increased his visibility, he also increased the number of people who absolutely despised him, and he was easy to dislike. For starters, he was short, ugly, and only spoke broken Russian. Now that might be fine if he had an affable personality, but he had all the charm of a vulture. He ceaselessly puffed at his pipe, and his thick, Georgian accent was made worse by his rudeness. He was a fan of what you might call, uh, colorful metaphors. He was constantly making sexual and scatological references, even toward his own mother and daughter. This was compounded by his lack of intellectual spark. Sure, he was fairly well-educated and sly like a fox, but he wasn't exactly a high-minded philosopher. He espoused perfectly orthodox Bolshevik views about the revolution, but never grasped the higher cultural, economic, or philosophical concepts. During any great debate within the committee, he always landed firmly on the side that had won the debate. Stalin's craven ways and scheming led even Trotsky and Lenin himself to despise him. So how did he end up being in the inner circle of the new Bolshevik government anyway? It was his pure, maniacal, calculating genius for placing loyal puppets in positions of power through the committees he chaired, and his remarkable knack for making inconvenient men and rivals disappear. Through his increasing influence, he was also able to procure powerful allies. He could use his various committees to benefit the right people, who would then help him when the time came. Stalin had another card up his sleeve, though. The perception by the party elite that he was a country simpleton. Few who held the reins of power considered him to be an actual threat, and thought he could be manipulated. How wrong they were. Stalin's time to call in his favors came in April of 1922, when he was elected general secretary. Through a combination of harvesting favors and a plot by the likes of Kamenev and Zinoviev to block Trotsky from pushing out Lenin, he was able to secure election to the position. For the next two years, he was able to concentrate more and more power in the GenSec position and conflated more and more of that power with himself, so that by the time Lenin died in 1922, he was ideally positioned to seize the mantle of power. It would not prove so simple, though. Trotsky was still alive, and in his last will, Lenin denounced Stalin for the malignant creature that he was. Lenin specifically stated that Stalin would be removed from the position and denied power. Stalin had to move quick. The very same night, he sent his personal goons to round up every copy of Lenin's will to have it destroyed. His gambit was successful, and every single copy of Lenin's will was destroyed, preventing it from ever being seen by the party congress. He also had to contend with several other power centers around him. There were his allies, Zinoviev and Kamenev, but Trotsky was still extremely influential. Together, they brought down Trotsky and ruled the Soviet Union as a triumvirate. This was still not enough for the Man of Steel, though. So he jettisoned his allies and embraced the right wing of the party. When this happened, his old allies joined forces with Trotsky. Using his position as General Secretary, he arranged for all three men to be ejected from the party and exiled. Soon, he stood alone, atop the pile of bodies, ruling the whole of the Soviet Empire. By 1928, he was the most powerful man in Russia and began to mold it to his will. He would prove to be far more authoritarian and repressive than the Tsars ever dreamed of being. Now that he held absolute power, Stalin began his campaign of modernization and terror. He had a national self-consciousness when it came to Russia's backwardness. He was the master of a country of peasant farmers. Unlike Germany, France, and the UK, the Tsars had never committed to industrializing. Much like slavery economically retarded industrialization in America's South, so too had serfdom made it infeasible in Russia. In his desire to modernize by force, Stalin instigated his now infamous pogroms. He forced millions of poor Ukrainian farmers off their lands and into urban factories. Russia went from a net exporter of food to a net importer, and starvation swept across the country. Through these ill-conceived collective measures, Stalin killed millions and created undue suffering for yet millions more. The starvation and deprivation of Russia's poor was hardly the worst of Stalin's sins, though. He was deeply paranoid and vengeful. His campaigns of terror and murder are more like rampages. As terrible and evil as Hitler and Mussolini were, there's no evidence that they personally enjoyed killing. Stalin reveled in it. According to his one-time ally, Kamenev, he once remarked that, quote, to choose the victim, to prepare the blow with care, to stake an implacable vengeance, and then to go to bed. There is nothing sweeter in the world." End quote. Stalin was without a doubt a madman. Throughout the 1930s, no one was safe from Stalin's wrath. He saw to it that anyone who had ever so much as presented themselves as a potential rival was imprisoned or killed. Of the 12 members of the first Soviet government established in the revolution, Stalin killed all save himself. He killed hundreds of Central Committee members. He had the Bolshevik Old Guard rounded up and executed. Bukharin, Kamenev, Zinoviev, all former allies whom he had executed. Then he initiated his great military purge. Men from every branch and position in the military's command structure were rounded up and killed or imprisoned. In the end, over 80,000 men would fall to Stalin's mad purge of his armed forces. When he was done, untested and unprepared captains were commanding divisions. Not only had he eliminated all experience within his army, but he also had paralyzed it with fear. Officers were more afraid of the commissar than the enemy. Hence, the sobering losses they suffered during the Winter War. Stalin didn't just kill strangers, though. He had people who he had known personally murdered and exiled. His brother-in-law and his wife, who had raised his eldest son. His own wife's brother-in-law. He had a former mistress murdered and when a rising party leader found her body and reported that he believed foul play was involved, he too was sent to the gulag. It's strange though, that in his extreme paranoia, he came to trust Hitler. While many within his own government tried to warn him that dealing with Hitler was dangerous, Stalin actually placed faith in their non-aggression pact and the partition of Poland. Perhaps it was because Stalin didn't actually adhere to any ideology. He was no more bound to communism than he was to the czars. Had a fascist movement arisen in Russia instead of a socialist one, he likely would have climbed to the top of that organization, and he probably assumed Hitler was the same way. He didn't realize that Hitler was a true believer, who believed his own myth. Perhaps that is the defining characteristic of Joseph Stalin. Not that he was ostensibly a communist, or manipulator, or a power monger, but that he was a nihilist. He believed in nothing.